Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to cast it out. They weren't able and he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse so much, so most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What an amazing passage of scripture this morning that we have before us. I want to ask you a question. Would you be here this morning and would you be a person who is self-reliant would you see yourself as quite self-sufficient? Or would you be someone who is feeling hopeless? A loss of hope? Do you feel discouragement or defeatism? If that's you this morning, I am so glad that you came to be with us this morning. Because I believe that God has a word of encouragement for you. You know, when I was about 22 or 23, my dad took me and my sister and my mom to Israel. And we toured the Holy Lands in Israel. We drove over the various, um, drove to various places that are described here in the Old Testament and in the, in the New Testament. And you talk about a mixture of emotions rising up within you. I mean, there's excitement, there's a surrealness. For me, there was a bit of an irritation by the commercialism. There was a tension between the dominant religions, Islam, Catholicism, Christianity. But there's also a sense of amazement 
an amazement that Jesus had left heaven and earth and came to Jerusalem, to Israel, to Judah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's not that flash. It's pretty, you know, dry and rough and rustic. And I mean, now it's been developed, but it's not that great of a place. I mean, he could have gone to Hawaii or something, but he chose to go to Judah, Israel. When you are there, floods of, um, tons of questions can flood your mind. I mean, you're thinking, what happened over there? And what happened over there? And am I actually standing in the place that Jesus actually stood? It's truly a wondrous experience. And after we toured Israel, we went on to Rome and we traced the footsteps of Paul and we saw the prison, where one of the prison cells that he was in, where he's believed he wrote letters to the churches. But we toured around all of these wonderful sites and we went to the Vatican City. And it was there in the Vatican City that you see, you know, Michelangelo's work. And there's another um, artist there by the name of Raphael who has painted a painting called the Transfiguration. And I've got a picture of it here for you this morning. Now, I'm not a fan of this piece of art, but it's a picture. It's an image for you. And what you see on it is you see Jesus there at the top, and then you've got Moses and Elijah on the left and right, and then you've got the disciples directly underneath at Jesus' feet. Over to the left, you see a couple of guys. Raphael used, um, added those two guys. They were martyred in the 1500s. They were um, martyred for faith. Um, and then below that, in that dark section, you can see there the um, little boy with his eyes kind of mixed up and his mouth is gaping open and his dad's holding him. And then you see some of the crowd. And then you see some of the disciples, the other nine disciples that were left that didn't get to go to the transfiguration. And they're actually pointing up to Jesus. He's the only answer for this father and his boy. But the artist has really captured something here for us that I'd like to point out. And that is the contrast between the glorious mount of transfiguration and then the troubled world that's waiting below. Just a day or so ago in our passage from this text... Peter, James, and John have been up on the mountain seeing a sight of sheer splendor and wonder. There on the top of Mount Hermon, under the bright Milky Way, Jesus has been transfigured before their very eyes. He became this radiant light representing a heavenly and divine glory and majesty. Why was that? Why did that happen? Riley explained for us beautifully last week. It was an image of them to behold, a, a vision for them to hold on to. It was going to be a source of hope for them in the darkness that was to come. We're reminded later, Riley rightly reminded us later, that John, in his gospel letter, he wrote, We have seen his glory, the one and only Son. In Hebrews 1.13, we're told that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. An incredible experience for these guys to have seen this happen before them. And then to top all of that off, what I found so incredible about that account in chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, was that the disciples... If seeing Jesus being transfigured wasn't enough, on the, in the, out of the cloud, the Father says, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. 
It finishes. I don't know how Jesus turned off or how he didn't, wasn't transfigured anymore, but can you imagine the conversation that took place bouncing down the hill with Peter and those sons of thunder? I mean, they must have been so exhilarated by what they had just seen and what they had experienced. And then at the bottom of the mountain, nine disciples of Jesus, some scribes, and a crowd are gathering And it's not looking like a very hopeful situation right now. This morning, I've entitled my message, Reforming Feeble Faith. Reforming Feeble Faith. And I've got three points for you as we work through the passage. The first one is a seemingly hopeless situation, followed by a personal encounter, followed by a powerful display. A seemingly hopeless situation takes place when they come down the mountain and they come up and see these nine disciples with a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. You see, here nine disciples of Jesus are carrying on in the ministry, but without Jesus being present. They're being heckled. They're probably being shouted at. They're getting the mickey taken out of them, as the Aussies would say. And the reason for this is because they can't cast the demon out that is troubling this little boy. These religious, well-educated scribes are giving it to Jesus' students. You see, these scribes are most likely recommending their formulas of exorcisms. Seeing the disciples aren't able to deliver the boy, they're offering how they would perhaps perform the exorcism. You see, in letters outside of Mark's gospel, we're told that the Orthodox Jews performed exorcisms. And these exorcisms were presumably done under the name of Yahweh. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is responding to the scribes, and he's saying to them, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We're also told in Acts chapter 19, verses 14 to 20, about the sons of Sceva. I'm not sure if you've heard that, but here some guys are trying to cast out, perform an exorcism on a, demo- a demon-possessed person, and these guys end up being overpowered and fling naked and wounded. You see, there were practices by the scribes that perhaps were done in the name of Yahweh, but perhaps not. And so we have the disciples arguing with the scribes and they're having a go but it's not working and a crowd is beginning to gather can you imagine this father bringing this son matthew's having a crack at delivering this boy matthew can't do it so he's calling bartholomew over and saying bartholomew you have a try bartholomew can't do it so judas is going to have a go judas can't do it so thomas is going to go all these nine disciples are unable to deliver this boy from the demoniac And the scribes are gathering, and now a crowd is gathering. It's kind of like one of those school fights when you were at school. A crowd is gathering around to see what's happening. And it's looking like a hopeless situation for the disciples and the Father. While this is going on, Mark tells us, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, they were greatly amazed 
You see, Jesus shows up to the crowd, and the crowd are amazed. Why are they amazed? Why are they overwhelmed with wonder? The word that Mark uses here is used four times in this gospel, and it's like a trembling astonishment that verges on alarm. Was it because of the afterglow that Jesus might have had remnants of the transfiguration on his face coming down Mount Hermon? Well, probably not, because Jesus instructed the disciples not to tell anyone in verse 9. It was most likely because Jesus has appeared when he was the topic of the discussion, and it was quite an unsympathetic conversation about him. So you get the picture, you get the idea. The crowd is excited and surprised, and they begin to greet him, and then look what Jesus does in verse 16. And he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? What's important to understand about what is going on here is that Jesus' question isn't one of ignorance. He knows what's going on. He fully understands what's taking place. He is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient God in the flesh. His question seems to be designed to draw attention away from the humiliated disciples, though he's not going to, um, you know, he's not worried about their feelings in that. But he is actually drawing attention to himself because he's going to bring clarity to the disciples soon. But the purpose of the question was to take attention away from the disputing scribes, the distract, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. And he's going to turn the attention to himself. And I think what Mark is wanting to show us here about this promised Messiah is that this Jesus has great authority. You see, in verses, in verses 14 and 15, it's describing a scene without any focus. By those two verses alone, you really can't understand what's going on. But then, when Jesus shows up, he commands attention. He's fulfilling a mission. He's here to change things. And so Jesus steps in and he asks the scribes, what are you arguing with the disciples about? He's commanding the scribes to direct their questions to him rather than to the disciples. And what Mark is kind of just letting the readers hear and understand is there's this tension that is brewing with these religious leaders and with Jesus. But there's a father who has a son who's been brought to Jesus. Verse 17 says, And when someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes it, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now you cannot be a parent and not be affected by this description. This son is not sick. He's being tortured. He's being smashed. Some commentaries say the poor boy is being assaulted. What a great description. I mean, four times in these 16 verses, we hear the description of the symptoms of what this boy is enduring. Convulsions, foaming of the mouth, locked jaw, outcries, loss of consciousness. He has no life. He can't speak. He can't do what the other boys do. Another description of a seemingly hopeless situation. 
Mark has described both the boy's condition and the father's distress in such a graphic way. And listen to what the father says. I asked the disciples to cast it out, and they were not able, verse 18. They weren't strong enough. They lacked sufficient power. They were helpless. Wait, 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 wait. What? The disciples couldn't do it? Wasn't it just back in chapter 6, verse 13, that these guys were sent out by Jesus in two to have authority over the unclean spirits? Wasn't it in chapter 3 that Jesus chose 12 disciples and took them away and set them apart that they might preach and have authority to cast out demons? The Father is saying that I asked the disciples to cast it out and they couldn't. This seemingly hopeless hopeless situation is bad, but it's about to change. But before it does, listen to Jesus' words in verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? You know, I am so grateful that we have words like this in Scripture, divinely inspired words. They're here for a purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is to give us insight into who Jesus is, who God is. And here, what do we notice? We learn of the weariness of the faithful one. Are you wearied by a situation? Are you wearied by a circumstance? Jesus fully knows exactly what that is like. That's what the O signifies when he says, O faithless generation. It's an emotional weariness that's not sinful, but it's a weariness. Now this word faithless that Jesus is describing, it means a lack of faith. It's not speaking of unfaithfulness. It's a lack of faith. So, excuse me, Jesus' rebuke or correction, is not intended to the disciples. It's not pointed to the disciples here. It's not about their lack of faith. Jesus is actually referring to the crowd. You see, the Greek word for generations is genia, and it occurs five times in Mark's gospel, but never once is it used with the reference to the disciples. So even though the disciples aren't able to deliver the boy, Jesus isn't chastising them here. Inability is simply a limitation, not a fault. James Edwards states that sentence in his commentary on Mark. Inability is simply a limitation, not a fault. Just because you can't do something doesn't mean that it's a a fault. It means you're limited, And so for Mark's readers, he's trying to help the readers who are reading about these accounts understand this Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. Let me show you some incredible passages of Scripture. These words that Jesus uses about this faithless generation... God has used for the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, we read, They have dealt corruptly with him. 
They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Deuteronomy 32, 20 says, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. In Numbers 14, 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? In Isaiah 65, verse 2, it says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. And church, you know what is so significant about this? Is that the doubts and unbelief of this crowd many years later, after those verses have been written, they do do not determine Jesus' willingness or ability to act. He continues to act. He continues to be faithful to who he is. Look what happens. The seemingly hopeless situation changes, and Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Now let's watch a personal encounter unfold, and that's the second point, a personal encounter. Verse 20 says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. What the father has described back in verse 18 is now becoming a reality in front of Jesus' eyes in verse 20. And this is the second of the fourth description of his symptoms. The boy is in a rage. You know, in Matthew's account, Matthew describes the boy as an epileptic. But regardless of the boy being diagnosed as an epileptic or not, the condition is being used as a front or a vehicle by the demoniac that is erupting in the presence of Jesus. Remember, Jesus has already completed 40 days in the wilderness. He is the more powerful one. And his chief mission is to bind up the strong man and to liberate the captives. You know, Jesus isn't fully conveyed by what he does, but rather who he is. Oh, sure, friends, we can be amazed by miracles, but we must trust and believe a person. And that is where Reformation begins. Now watch this personal encounter. This father's faith begins in a simple dialogue started by Jesus. Have you ever noticed that Jesus draws all men to himself and he's doing it right here? Watch in verse 21. He says um, to the father, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus already knows how long this has been going on. Remember, he is the all-powerful. He is the all-unchanging one. But this question allows the father to tell his story. He's able to tell Jesus he's actually been like this from childhood. He's near death more times than I want to remember. It's actually horrible to watch as a father. He's almost died Can you see what's happening? This question is allowing the father to declare what's going on inside of his heart. This questioning, this question is allowing the father to come to him as a total person with the hard facts and with human hopes. 
Human hopes, you ask? Yes. Look at verse 22. And he says, And if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. The original Greek reads, help us and have compassion on us. Both my son and myself, we both need help. Now this man wants help. But the hope for help is rooted in the fact that Jesus has compassion. His plea is joined with his faith. Though he's unsure of what will happen. It seems as though he knows that Christ could do it. But his faith is feeble. His faith is weak. His faith is shaken. You know, friends, Jesus can expel the demoniac forces in a word. He can heal the lame and he can give sight to the blind in a word. He created this place that we live in with words. Animals, trees, plants, rivers, lakes, oceans. He spoke and it was done. If you can, Jesus asks. The way to understand this is Jesus is saying back to the Father in essence, you say, if you can to me, but that's not the issue here, Dad. That's not the issue. Of course I can. But sir, the burden is actually on you. Because everything is possible for him who believes. The problem is not divine unwillingness. The problem is not divine inability. The problem is human unbelief. Do you need to hear that this morning? It's not divine unwillingness. It's not divine inability. It's human unbelief. Friends, can I caution you with something that is really important in understanding this passage of Scripture? It's called distortions. Distortions are so very, very, very cruel. This passage that is divinely inspired is not saying that if you are an epileptic or you suffer from epilepsy that you're demon-possessed. And nor is it saying that you don't heal from illnesses because you don't believe hard enough. That's promoting a self-focused ideology which needs reforming. You know, when my wife and I were at Bible college, there was a thing that was taking place where you could actually come to a, um, make an appointment and go see some people who would actually pray for you. And, and if you were healed, glory to God, if you weren't healed, it was because there was something wrong with you. And I would listen to these conversations take place and it would anger me because that's not true. That is not true. Faith is not its amount. Faith is its object. Do you believe that the chairs that you are sitting on are going to hold you up, correct? You believe that the bed that you are going to lay on is going to hold you up. You believe that that shopping spree or that football game or um, that holiday is going to provide you what you're looking for. You have placed faith in an object. 
You trust that object. Faith is not its amount. Faith is about its object. And Jesus is saying to this father, I am the object. It's about who we have faith in. We have faith in our parents. We have faith in our family, our friends. As Christians, we have faith in the Son of God. You see, in Scripture, faith and belief is generally understood as as living in personal trust in Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, um, the words faith and belief are used some 240 times each. And they're found in every book of the New Testament except for 2nd and 3rd John. Faith is a trust in God's character and then an obedience to his living voice expressed in his word. You know, it's interesting that faith in the Old Testament is the promise of God, which awaits its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. So faith is looking forward, whereas now it looks backwards to the object in Christ. So when Jesus says to this dad in verse 23, moving on, it, he says, if you can, that's what that means. And then he talks about all things are possible for the one who believes. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. All things does not mean that you can have whatever you want. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Nor is it about escaping the brokenness of the world or its consequences. All things means all that you need to know for right now, for today, for that moment. All things means all that you need to serve right now, right then, in this moment. All things means that all that you need to delight in Christ right now, in this very moment. These are the things that we really need. You see, friends, Jesus is not a miracle dispenser. He is a personal savior and he wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with you. Yes, he does want to give you blessings, but he wants to give you more than blessings. He wants to give you himself. And here we see him doing that with this father. This father was invited to believe. This poor father is facing Jesus and Jesus is saying, It's not the question of whether I can do it, but will you believe? For everything is possible for him who believes. And now comes one of the greatest responses in all of scripture in verse 24. Immediately, one of Mark's favorite words to use, the father of the child cries out and says, I believe Help my unbelief. Can you picture this, Dad? It's absolutely sobering. And yet as a reader, this side of the cross, how encouraging it is to see such an honest man reply to Jesus in that way. You know, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. Spurgeon, one of our favorite prince of preachers, they call him, he says this, While men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. 
this man's faith is becoming made aware. And he can see the greatness of his unbelief. This man's unbelief is not a rebellion against or a rejection of God's promises. He didn't deny God's promises. He desired it. It just seemed too good to be true, though. Thus he said, help my unbelief. And now watch as Jesus responds in power to this man's feeble and humble faith. It's actually a powerful display, which is point three. In verse 25, it says, And when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. I'd hate for you to miss these two verbs that Mark uses to show Jesus' authority. So let me show you them in verse 25. He sees the crowd coming, and Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, and he commands it to never return again. And what happens next is that this demon does come out of the boy, and it makes a scene. But it's not successful against King Jesus. But the boy looks as though he's dead, and the crowd begins to murmur, he's dead, he's dead. And then the intervention of Jesus in this moment is just astounding. He takes the boy by the hand, and he lifts him up. Can you imagine the scene? Can you see it? Can you picture it? Can you hear the cheers of the disciples? Can you see the relief on this father's face? The Lord gave the boy back his mind. The Lord gave back this boy his hearing, his speech, his hope, his vision. I wonder what it did for this boy's own faith. (laughs) Will we see this little boy running around in heaven? We'll have to wait till eternity to see that. But what about this dad? What did this dad's feeble faith accomplish? He has a trust. He has a trust in the word and the promise of Jesus alone. Are you here this morning and you're thinking, but you don't understand my situation. You don't know how hard it is to trust this. You don't know how hard I've tried. My situation is incredibly difficult. And I would say to you, I don't know. But I do know someone who does. And he will reform your feeble faith, just as he did with this father, and just as he does with his dearly disciples, dearly beloved disciples. You see, faith, friends, is based on knowledge. It's not some airy-fairy, fluffy idea. Knowledge, it's a faith is based on a knowledge. For Christians, it's a knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. A knowledge is followed by an agreement that that knowledge is true and that agreement is followed by a confession. And one of the greatest illustrations, my wife and I were talking about this last night, there are a few people throughout history who have shown great faith, but there's none that I can get past but Moses. And I identify with Moses because... See, Moses gave up worldly wealth and honor. 
In Hebrews 11, it talks about man, Moses is used as a man of faith. He gave up worldly wealth and he gave up worldly honor. And what did he do? He committed to a people who would suffer constant conflict. Remember all those plagues? Remember all those many millions of people grumbling and complaining? Do you remember how he threw down the tablets because they're building an idol after, the, after God had parted the Red Sea? But he committed himself to these people. He endured gossip and grief from these people who wanted to get rid of him. What for? Why did he do all of that? It was for the value of having Christ. That is what Moses wanted. And you know what? According to scripture, Moses is not disappointed. And you know what is so incredibly special about the way that this passage unfolds and what we glean from it and what we learn from it is that Jesus has helped this father and he's helped this son But what about the disciples? What is he showing the disciples here? If you remember back in last week's sermon, in verse 10, so they kept silent after Jesus tells them to be kept silent about the transfiguration, but they're questioning, what about this rising from the dead? What does that mean? And here, Jesus gives them their first object lesson on the meaning of his own death and resurrection when he takes that little boy and lifts him up and restores him completely and fully. Now Mark concludes the story with a bit of an epilogue here. He takes the disciples away privately. Jesus took them by the hand of, sorry, verse 28. And when they had entered the house, which is usually a sign of Jesus discipling and explaining what's going to happen, his disciples asked him privately, Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some later versions of the scripture add fasting to it. But here you basically have nine disciples who've been away from Jesus for about six days. But their reliance on Jesus has drifted. Their reliance on God has drifted. They've lost touch. They're forgetting their source of power. You see, Jesus had indeed given them authority to cast out demons But the authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if it was exercised by faith. Doesn't that say something to you, friends? When you learn that Jesus, Son of God in flesh, emptied himself of everything, taking on the form of a servant, coming to earth, God giving up early to spend time with the Father, We read in John 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, 
you can do nothing. My friends, God's power comes abundantly to those who humbly rely on Christ. But how is it that we are to rely on Christ? Dear friends, it's through prayer. Listen to the Prince of Preachers again. He says this, God encourages us to pray. They tell us that prayer is a pious exercise which has no influence except upon the mind engaged in it. We know better. Our experience gives the lie a thousand times over to this infidel assertion. Here, Jehovah, the living God, distinctly promises to answer the prayer of his servant. Let us call upon him again and admit no doubt upon the question of his hearing us and answering us. He that made the ear, shall he not hear? He that gave parents to love their children, will he not listen to the cries of his own sons and daughters? God will answer his pleading people in their anguish. He has wonders in store for them. What they've never seen, heard of, or dreamed of, he will do for them. He will invent new blessings if needful. He will ransack sea and land to feed them. He will send every angel out of heaven to secure them if if their distress requires it. He will astound us with his grace and make us feel that it was never done in this fashion. All he asks of us is that we will call upon him. He cannot ask less of us, lest us cheerfully render him our prayers at once. Oh, brothers and sisters, how are you depending on him? Is your situation a situation where you feel hopeless and helpless? Are you in a situation where you see that I can just press on? I can do this. This morning's passage, our message is called Reforming Feeble Faith. Can I ask you, who are you depending on? What is your faith in? Can I challenge you to cry out like the father of this boy and ask your feeble faith to be reformed in trusting Jesus, the mighty Messiah, the soon and coming King? One more quote, total dependence on God is the remedy for many spiritual problems. To be disappointed in yourself is to have trusted in yourself. Dear friend, are you trusting in yourself this morning? Remember the painting? Remember the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John, they're pointing to the only answer for that father and son. And I think Mark has done that here for us this morning so beautifully. God's power comes abundantly to those who humbly rely on Christ. And I would like to pray for us in closing that we would be able to say what is impossible for man is absolutely possible with God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you do change us. And I do thank you for this word that reminds us of who you are and what you're like. Lord, thank you that you don't grow weary and irritated with us in a sinful way. You understand what it is like for us to doubt. And in this Father's lack of faith, it's a feeble faith. 
and yet you use it powerfully. Lord, would we grow in our confidence and in the knowledge that you are the Son of God? Would we grow in our confidence in your word and in your truths? Father, would we be eager to abide with you? Would we hold on to you in storms? Because, Lord, all we want is you. And so I pray, Lord, that this week as we think about these words, Lord, that our faith would be reformed and changed and that you would be the object of our faith. You would be the source of our faith and the hope. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.